Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are very, very pleased to have with us today award-winning author Amiti Schles. Schles chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. She serves as presidential scholar at the King's College, where she teaches about Coolidge. Ms. Schles is the author of four New York Times bestsellers, The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, The Forgotten Man Graphic, Calvin Coolidge, The Greedy Hand, How Taxes Drive Americans Crazy. And today we'll be looking at Calvin Coolidge. George Will, Pulitzer Prize winner, conservative columnist, uh, called uh, Mishle's book on Calvin Coolidge to read Amitishle's well-crafted biographies to understand why Reagan so admired the famously red man Blaze calls our great refrainer. And in preparation for this, uh, we purchased and read through the autobiography of Calvin Coolidge, which is edited by uh, Ms. Schles. It was just a, a wonderful read to read um, the words of an American president. And it's very, what really struck me in, in many ways was its simplicity and you know, just, just, just the, the, the down to earth uh, presentation of, of his life and the presidency. So we'll just get going. Uh, just a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Calvin Coolidge. There are two answers. One is personal and one is policy. I am an economic historian and I wrote a book about the 1930s and the story, if you made a, a subline, a subheadline, it would be, they broke it. That is, our government and events broke our economy. But what was the economy while it was as yet unbroken? That's the 20s. And when you go back and look at the 20s, the good economy, and it really was a good economy. It wasn't just a bubble in Jay Gatsby's champagne glass. Uh, well, Coolidge, the president in that period, was was in good measure responsible for American prosperity in the 20s. And that took me to him. The personal answer is I worked for Robert Leroy Bartley, the editor of the Wall Street Journal for a long time. And Bob Bartley was a very silent man. Uh, you would go years without hearing from him as his employee. And he would write a comment say on an editorial uh, um, about the Italian lira in the day, good. He wouldn't spill over, slop over. So I was accustomed to to uh, that kind of demeanor in an important person uh, whom I grew to admire. And I would say when I encountered Coolidge uh, on the pages, I could see that he was the pre-incarnation of Robert Leroy Bartley. That, it's a very familiar uh, American type, frankly, an agricultural type too. Uh, not too many words, terse words, understatement rather than overstatement, the opposite of marketing. So I, I was familiar uh, with that, that demeanor. I'm also from the Midwest. So I've, I've met a lot of um, Midwesterners like that as well. Okay, wonderful. Uh, and what were the major early influences that shaped Coolidge, the person, and of course, later the president. I think um, the classics, 
and you would know better than I, you know, what he thought of Marco Aurel, of Marcus Aurelius, or, but he did, uh, he did learn Latin, and you can see it in his prose. He moves words around, he's used to inflected languages. He will move words around in a sentence easily, the way modern Americans can't handle. But anyone who's studied an inflected language uh, isn't bothered by words being reordered in a sentence because the word carries the meaning, you know, the little endings. Um, also, the framers, he's very much influenced by the framers. In this book, he talks about reading the Constitution as a boy. I, I would say being, he kind of grew up in a Tocqueville town, a, to a New England Tocqueville village with town meeting. The whole, the whole um, thing you imagine from Norman Rockwell the, of the town meeting and the man getting up, making a point and every man having his say, uh, every citizen having his say, that was Coolidge's boyhood. He sold uh, apples or popcorn at the town meeting, um, which was over his father's store. Uh, and then uh, you can't leave out faith. Um, the Coolidge's lived in such a small community, they didn't have a minister. They were largely Protestants, largely Northern Baptists and Congregationalists. It was kind of a culture in that area of default congregationalism in New England, Plymouth Notch, Vermont. Um, but his, his grandmother taught Sunday school and she had a big say in raising Calvin Coolidge because his, his mother died when he was uh, young and grandmother stepped in. And uh, it, this church was interesting because without a minister, it kind of ran itself in that sense. It was a little bit more like a Jewish community. It didn't have a fiery, charismatic rabbi or preacher and everyone just just um jumped when when the rabbi or the or the minister spoke it was more or less run by the laity uh and there was some vacillation there it was their church not their a minister's church and i think they kind of liked it that way though uh, economy was an issue too they i don't think plymouth notch his town which is in a part of vermont that pretends to be arable but isn't um, and uh, that could could have well afforded the kind of pay ministers got. Remember, Coolidge was born in 1872. There was no radio. There was no TV. Who is your superstar? It's your minister. Who is your charismatic speaker? Often it's the minister who, you know, so they were like TV stars, the successful ministers in that time. They probably couldn't afford it that either. That's what he grew up with. And when you read his prose, it is homiletic. It's like a, it, it's like prose from a good sermon. Excellent. Okay. And, and what was his personality like as, as, as a person? You know, often they, political pundits say, you know, is, is uh, we, we sometimes choose a candidate that we would maybe want to have a beer with, or perhaps the opposite, a candidate that we wouldn't want to have a beer with. What was his personality like? Definitely no beer. Okay. I think he was the banker you like because the numbers always work out. And he was an under-promise, over-deliver. Uh, that, that was his motto over under promise over deliver 
and he would go and hear people out. He listened to people. He was a good listener because he didn't talk a lot. That's important. Uh, remember when he campaigned um, at first, again, there was no radio. So he would be riding around in a cart. And then the automobile gradually came in with the railroad. So you see politicians of that period speaking from the back of the train to the public. But his personality was under promise, over deliver. He's like a good used car salesman that you go back to. And what was the trajectory of his political career? Just if you could just set the background and maybe just the steps, the stages until he reached the presidency. Well, one of the salient features of our, our republic at that time was we, we didn't have the 17th Amendment yet in the United States. So senators were chosen by state legislatures. So we have bicameral U.S., right? Congress chosen by the people, but senators were chosen by state legislatures. We treat that as, and, and conventions were smoke-filled rooms. That is, the guys picked a guy they liked, not, they were less democratic, um, at least than we pretend to be currently are in our conventions and picking up candidates. So that wasn't all bad because the senators got to know each other fairly well in the state legislature. And uh, they knew what someone was like on the third impression as opposed to the first. Um, and Coolidge grew up in that period. So uh, his critics among the progressives said he climbed the greasy pole of the Republican Party. I don't know if it was greasy and I don't know if one should use pe pejoratives, but he he worked his way up with an eye to pleasing the party, his party, which was the Republican Party, who then promptly put him in jobs. And then the voters joined the party in doing that because the voters liked him. He was known as an immigrant candidate. There's a nice dissertation by a fellow named John Blair. I believe it's the University of Chicago dissertation about Coolidge's immigrant candidate in the early part of his career. So he started um, in the little town of Northampton, Massachusetts, which was a very hopeful town. It, it, it thought it was the future. It saw itself as um, a really important little town, um, at, you know, working in, as a solicitor for the city, as a representative, trying to get involved in schools. Then he went to the state legislature. Then he was mayor of Northampton. It's a county seat. Okay, that's where Smith College is and Amherst is in that county. Mm -hmm. Then he, after being mayor, he was in the Senate. Then he became president of the Senate of the Bay State, of what they call the General Court, which is the the legislature in Massachusetts. And then he was lieutenant governor and then he was governor of Massachusetts. So that's the greasy pole all the way up. And he usually won um, in part because he was so solicitous of his constituents, including new constituents. And you think Coolidge, well, Boston, Snob, Mayflower, it's not quite like that. Uh, there were Coolidge's of Boston and Boston was the Mayflower city. But Coolidge represented Western Massachusetts, which was the newcomers uh, at the time. It was they, they, the people in Boston looked down on the people in Western Mass. Coolidge was almost a frontiersman to the Bostonians. Uh, he wasn't the Coolidge they knew, knew. They knew fancier Coolidges, right? 
uh, and that's very evident if you read the papers. Coolidge, who, when Coolidge was named vice presidential candidate, the German newspapers got his first name wrong because they looked up Coolidge and they found other eminent Coolidges who they knew from whose names they knew from diplomacy and they, they it had to be that one right it wasn't this calvin coolidge they hadn't really studied so the overseas papers got the wrong coolidge as vice presidential candidate i, I think that's very interesting um his his main influence was a man named murray crane and you've heard of crane stationary c-r-a-n-e real name in the united states for a long time murray grew up in the family business. His business was the paper company and the crane company also printed the US dollar. So when you go buy the crane plant in Western Mass, they say that's the government plant. (laughs) But it was the crane plant on contract with a mighty important contract currency made. That's where Murray came from. And he was also a man of few words. Also, didn't go to Harvard, um, not a man of the Boston establishment, and yet a U.S. senator in this early time where where Coolidge was growing up. And I think it was Crane who taught Coolidge that you didn't have to talk a lot to win an election. Interesting. So so he he moves up to the national uh, limelight, to the national spotlight by first becoming vice president? Well, he moves up to the national spotlight because he had a public sector strike. And it was a year of public sector strikes. There was inflation that was unacknowledged by the government right after World War I, bad inflation. Um, There was a general sense we could have revolution in the United States. Look at what was going on in Europe in 1919 or 1920. There were a lot of Irishmen and women in the state of Massachusetts. They were studying the events in Ireland. Well, Maybe we should have a revolution here, right? That was the mood. Um, And certainly we should have social democracy. Certainly we can live with Sam Gompers, the the AFL, which was the the less radical union leader, not a communist like the Wobblies. Well, the policemen of Boston, who were largely Irish Americans, um, went on strike. And by a quirk in Massachusetts state law, they reported all the way up to uh, the governor, who happened to be Calvin Coolidge, and it wasn't in their contract that they could strike the opposite. But they affiliated with Sam Gompers and expected authorities to be grateful they weren't communists, right? They were just asking for, frankly, things they did need on their jobs, such as better conditions, better pay, um, not so many hours, fewer rats in the station houses. There were vermin in the state, you know, um, uh, a serious look at their working conditions and their obligations in a very rough town because Boston was a port city and the soldiers were returning home at that time. You can imagine what that's like for disruption. But they broke the law and they were fired, these policemen. And Coolidge backed up the police commissioner in firing the policemen at great peril to his career because I mentioned before Irish voters often voted for Coolidge. Uh, And when he fired the policeman, which was in September 1919, the strike was around Labor Day. Thought that would be a good emotional moment for the policeman to strike. The election wasn't very long after. It was that November and Coolidge could have lost, not been reelected as governor. Very tough decision for Calvin Coolidge because he liked these voters. He understood 
the policeman's working conditions, but he, he wrote a famous telegram to Gompers, who supported the policeman, um, no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, any time. It's an odd sentence if you listen to the grammar. No right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. Right of or right by, right, okay. is a kind of confused sentence. And I think it has to do with his tension at the moment. Um, but it, whatever its syntactical mysteries, it re resonated across the country. No right to strike against the public safety. No right to strike against the public safety. And even Woodrow Wilson, Coolidge was a Republican, Wilson was a Democrat, in his way, backed up Governor Coolidge after Governor Coolidge drew a line in the sand against public sector strikes in big cities that are dangerous. You know, there were riots in Boston when the police went on strike. People took advantage of the absence of the policemen. And uh, that made Coolidge a national figure. It also showed how in the United States, a governor can teach a president. When you have strong states, you really do have little labs of democracy that can inform the national government. And we've almost forgotten all these notions, but that was in operation rather beautifully. Um, in the Coolidge, Wilson's like, oh, yes, that's that's probably right. No right to strike against the public safety, kinder, you know, uh, and and that was the story. So that was how Coolidge got on the vice president, on the president, on the ticket, the Republican mm -hmm. ticket as number two, the vice presidential candidate the following year. Coolidge, the strike. And he says as much in the autobiography, which I hope you buy for your children. Um, I really like it. And he wrote it for children, the children of, you know, the children of the people he knew, the right. children of the future. Right. Okay. Um, so so he, he, he comes from this conservative background and he has this overarching political philosophy, which is conservative. And so how would you define it and how would you compare it to what we think of as, you know, in America today, the conservative movement. Related, but not at all equivalent. I mean, you think about what did he, I mean, what did he think about foreign policy? He thought that the U.S. served the world best by example. That's also, he was a, re, his name wasn't Calvin by accident. He was a real, you know what the names in their families were? They were Calvin, Oliver, and John Calvin. <laughs> Um, it was about like that. And Calvin, Oliver, Oliver Cromwell, right? Mm -hmm. And the, so one of them was named Julius Caesar. You just wonder what they were reading. You know, they're, they're wonderful people. Uh, uh, it, it, America was an example. It had to be an example. He had to be an example. He was seemingly, though we can know, never know everything, a very virtuous man. He lived by example. He told the country to be frugal. He lived frugally. There was no great disconnect between his private and public comportment. And that served him very well. He was for tariffs. Why? I think uh, he, he, he did say at one point, I go up or down with my party. The GOP was his party. The, the Republicans were the party of tariffs. The Democrats were the party of the income tax at that point. It was tariffs or income tax you could pick 
Um, but also he saw them as politically expedient. Why? Um, he was around Lowell and Lawrence, Massachusetts in the rough periods of the strikes. We had progressives in the United States and those are famous strikes in Massachusetts at, at, at textile factories. What does the owner of the factory do? He can give in to the strikers or prevent a strike with higher wages, but only if he doesn't have competition from overseas sending cheaper textiles. Only if he doesn't price himself out of the market by supporting his workers. So I think Coolidge's main view of tariffs was they help keep America calm. And that's not different from from the protectionism of today. Uh, whether that's true, I don't know. Because, of course, every little price goes up when you have tariffs at the Walmart for us. But in the day, prices were high because we didn't have international competition. So that was the trade-off. So that he had that in common with current conservatives. He never, though, said a nasty word about an opponent that I can find in public. Uh, when he was very young, he did. And he, he writes in this remarkable autobiography that he ruse even that because he believed you should give more time to your own subject and your own merits when you're campaigning than to trashing the opponent. So he wasn't a populist who lived off resentment, which is what um, many politicians, including many Republicans are today. Not like that. Um, he said, don't expect to help the weak by pulling down the strong. He would never say the elite are bad because, in effect, we are all elite. Uh, you know, as he said, to be a U.S. citizen was to be of a rank with kings. He, he just didn't buy any of that class warfare. So so that was very traditional um, and not quite like now when they get on the TV and say the elites. Um I think he was a very recognizable person, um, including two Jews. Uh, he was a person who was responsible for his own virtue, didn't particularly like being chastised by others, um, but took it upon himself to teach himself how to be virtuous, more of a Calvinist. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, in my view, Judaism has a lot more in common with that than some other Christian denominations. Um, very close to the Bible, family read the Bible a lot, um, very close to the framers who also read the Bible a lot. You can hear the Bible in his writings.